Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon and thank you uh, for coming today. Um, today I'm going to be talking about uh, behavioral and brain asymmetries and in many ways uh, my talk uh, complements uh, several of the talks we've heard previously. Uh, just to give you, by way of background, um, our lab is uh, interested in the evolution of language and in particular in relation to the emergence of hemispheric specialization. So what is hemispheric specialization? It is um, um, sensory, motor, and cognitive processes that are differentially processed or represented um, in the left and right uh, cerebral hemispheres. Probably the two most overt uh, manifestations of hemispheric specialization in our species is handedness. Um, so if you take a look here, this is the percentage of actually left-handed people um, in, from different cultures. Um, uh, you can see here that uh, this, the Spanish are very liberal, will tolerate 25% of their population being left-handed. Uh, that would be in contrast to, say, the Sudanese or the Iraqis, which are very uh, less tolerant of left-handedness. But overall, uh, all there is cultural variation, um, we as a whole are right-handed. In addition, uh, language... Uh, is a highly specialized uh, and lateralized function in the human brain. Um, so these are some very old data uh, from uh, Rasmussen and Milner. It's the WADA test where they inject sodium amytal into the carotid artery and it anesthetizes each half of the brain. Um, they did this in a sample of right and left-handed individuals. And it turns out, if you look at the percent of the sample, about 96% of people who are right-handed, if you anesthetize the left half of their brain, they will show speech arrest. In other words, they will stop talking. All right, compared to uh, 2% uh, if you anesthetize the right hemisphere and 2% if you anesthetize, uh, they show speech arrest if both, in both hemispheres, if you will. For left-handers, um, it's about 70% of individuals show this uh, speech arrest if you anesthetize uh, the left hemisphere, compared to about 15 that show uh, arrest if you, uh, for both hemispheres, and 15% if you anesthetize the right hemisphere. So this is statistically different, right? But I think the real takeaway message is that, um, independent of being right or left-handed, most people are left hemisphere dominant for their language. Uh, lastly, because I'm going to be talking a little bit about brain asymmetries, I just want to mention that um, these functional asymmetries, for the most part, have anatomical correlates um, in the brain. So what's our view about hemispheric specialization from a phylo phylogenetic perspective? Um, it's really this, and this view has really, uh, I'd like to wish it, I'd like to say it's changed, but it, um, I'm not convinced it has. Uh, most evolutionary models uh, have proposed that hemispheric specialization emerged after the split between chimpanzees and humans. And almost everything that we read out there um, suggests that uh, the emergence of hemispheric specialization is uh, associated with some very unique human adaptations. Um, so one would be something like language and speech. All right, so uh, the idea was that uh, language needed some specialized system in the brain, and it recruited the left half of the brain, and, and that's how it ended up there and unique to our species. Uh, others have suggested things like bipedalism, all right? When our hands became increasingly free uh, and um, unencumbered from the demands of locomotion, we were able to do lots of sophisticated things with them, like gesture and uh, complex manipulation, including um, the uh, manufacture and use of tools, all right? But I think the real takeaway here is that uh, the uh, system emerged after this split. Now, there are some limitations, um, or at least historically, there have been some limitations. Um, and I'll just start, uh, point out a couple of them. 
Um, first, uh, I, I like to say a lot of the theory about the evolution of hemispheric specialization are theories really that were emerged without any data. All right. So um, before the year uh, 1993, um, there were almost no studies on handedness in chimpanzees. In fact, the largest single study was a, was a sample with 30 subjects, um, and they measured a handedness for four different tasks, none of which were terribly complex. Right? It was published in Science, all right? so that's good. All right? But you know, really, it was the only one. Um, in terms of the brain, um, until recently, um, uh, with the advent of um, in vivo imaging technologies, which we've heard about a little bit, um, uh, the studies relied mostly on postmortem tissue. And as you'll hear about, I'm sure, throughout today, uh, sometimes those dish- tissues are difficult to come by. All right? In addition to that, um, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, if you're measuring different aspects of asymmetry in the brain, and let's say you're measuring the plantum temporality and you measure that in the um, coronal plane and you do that in a postmortem brain, you've cut the brain. All right, now if I want to go measure, the, say, the inferior frontal gyrus and I want to measure it in the um, sagittal plane, I now need a whole new set of brains because I can't really work with the, site, the set of brains I've just sliced up. Um, and lastly, I'll just mention this, but I'm not really going to talk about it. There are um, some, I would say, even numerous studies now in so-called lower vertebrates that have demonstrated evidence of population-level behavioral asymmetry. So our views are beginning to change some. Uh, probably most prevalent um, are some work on podness and toads, uh, but there's also evidence from birdsong and other kinds of things. Okay, so the question is really this. Do chimpanzees and other primates show population-level handedness? Right? So we've studied this in our lab for a number of years, and I now have data on something like 450 chimps, give or take 20. And um, we've measured a variety of different things, uh, like simple reaching. So you just throw a little peanut into their cage, and they walk over and pick it up, and you simply record which hand they use. Um, this is called the tube task. All right? It's not high-tech. All right? It's not DTI. It's, uh, it's a piece of PVC that you buy at a hardware store, all right, and you cut it into a, a, uh, something about this long, and you put peanut butter on the inside of, of the tube, and then you hand it to the subject, and they hold it with one hand, and they extract the peanut butter with the other, and we just, again, record which hand they use. Um, and uh, it's a really great measure because um, the hands have to work in a complementary manner, all right, so they have to hold the substrate with one hand and use the opposite to extract it. And we define the dominant hand use as the one that's doing the extraction. Throwing, um, this is actually Reed throwing one of those PVC pipes back to me, <laughs> all right, since he wanted some more. Um, uh, just for the record, they're not usually throwing tubes. They're usually throwing something else. Uh, I love to tell the story of when I first started working with chimpanzees. You know, they threw a lot, and uh, particularly new people. Uh, so, and I thought, if I'm going to get thrown at by that, I'm going to get something out of it. So we started collecting data. True scientist. Um, this is a tool use. Um, so this is Pansy from the Language Research Center. It's the same idea. Instead of peanut butter having uh, down at this end of the tube, it's at the opposite end of the tube. She can't get it with her hands. She needs a tool of some sort. So here she's gone, and she's obtained a stick, and she's holding it in this case and extracting with that stick. And lastly um, is manual gestures. Um, since uh, much of the theory about um, hemispheric specialization is rooted in um, the notion of language, we thought, well, let's try to look at something lateralized in the domain of communication. So we looked at manual gestures. And almost all of the chimps we work with uh, if, are captives, so for the most part, they will 
point to request food from people, so you can set up experiments pretty easily um, to elicit that response, and then you can record uh, their left or right-hand use. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because the issue about how you classify subjects as left or right-handed is, is to me, is a mess. Uh, but for this purpose, uh, we can calculate a z-score based on the frequency of their right and left-hand use. And uh, we can, uh, if they have a z-score greater than 1.96, we'll call them right-handed. One, less than 1.96, we'll call them left-handed. And everyone else is what we'd call ambiguously handed. Okay, so here are some data. Um, what I've calculated here on the y-axis rather than uh, is just a ratio. So it's just with the total number of right-hand subjects divided by the total number of left. And uh, you can calculate a ratio, and we can do a chi-square statistic and determine whether or not there's significantly more right than left-handed subjects. Um, and if you look at throwing, that's true. So the chimps are right-handed for throwing. They're right-handed for manual gestures. They're right-handed for the use of the tube task. They're right-handed for simple reaching. Um, they show no bias for tool use. All right? And, um, you know, they're a little more right-handed for throwing than the other kinds of actions. And if I calculate an overall handedness for the subjects based on all of these measures, um, uh, which I, again, won't go into strong detail, um, that's represented here. Um, and essentially, there's about a two-to-one ratio. So there's about twice as many right-handers than left-handers. Here I've shown you what you typically hear the ratio for humans. All right? So if you ask a neuropsychologist, what's the ratio of right to left handedness in the human species, they'll say, oh, it's 8 to 1 or 9 to 1. Okay? Uh, maybe not so high if you live in Spain. All right? But um, still, it's, 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 they are far more right-handed, all right, as a species humans are, that is, than the chimps, at least the chimps we study. This is uh, data from almost 1,300 non-human primates that have all been tested on the tube task, okay? And um, the stars indicate those that show a population-level bias. That is to say, where a statistical majority of the individuals show a preferred hand use of right or left-handedness. So here's our chimp data again. So they're right-handed. The gorillas are right-handed. The bonobos are not. Um, but there's an age effect here, really. Um, if I included only the adults, this would pop up. Um, and interestingly enough, the orangutans are left-handed and significantly left-handed. Right, so this, that constitutes the apes. If you look at old-world monkeys, um, baboons seem to show a right-hand bias. Debraza monkeys are left, as are the snub-nosed monkeys. All right, whereas uh, rhesus macaques and Barbary macaques, uh, they show some trends, but they're not statistically significant. And then two um, New World monkey species have been tested, squirrel monkeys and capuchins. And again, they show some biases in one direction or another, but as a population, they don't make statistically. Right? So other species can show some population-level handedness too. Right? But what I'd really emphasize is two things. Number one, none of them are getting to, you know, this, this isn't scaled to eight. It's scaled to three or four. All right? So even in the case of the orangutan that shows this very pronounced left-hand bias, um, the ratio of you know, dominant to non-dominant individuals is somewhat less than what we typically see in humans. Um, if you ask me on the little card, why is this the case, I'm not sure I'm going to have a good answer. Okay, So you could save some, uh, maybe have a better question. Um, I'll, I'll throw one out now. Um, if, let's just focus on the apes. The orangutans are the most arboreal. The gorillas are the most terrestrial. So if I move these around instead of phylogenetic distance, but rather terrestrial to arboreality, the story could be interesting. Uh, the same for the old world monkeys, Debraza, Stemnos, highly arboreal, baboons, highly terrestrial. So maybe it has something to do with uh, terrestriality.
What about the brain? You can measure brain asymmetries a lot of ways, um, but it's a challenge to do comparative work in this area. So um, we have done a number of studies of brain asymmetry in chimpanzees looking at a variety of brain structures, um, such as the plantum temporality, the hippocampus, amygdala, basal ganglia structures, such as the caudate putamen. Um, and, the, and some of those can be studied in other primates relatively easily. But when you get to the cortical areas, it's a bit more of a challenge. Um, uh, so today I wanted to try to talk a little bit about um, brain asymmetries in cortical sulci. Because right? that seems to be one that people like to study, and it has a long history in our discipline. And uh, the work I'm going to be talking about today uh, comes from, all comes from MRI work. Um, so we now have um, MRI scans, in vivo MRI scans from 115 chimpanzees um, from our lab. We've also um, scanned 65 macaque monkeys from three different species. Uh, I'll jump ahead and just say there aren't any species differences in the asymmetries that we've measured among the macaques. So I'm just going to lump them into one uh, genus. And then we've also included um, some data from human subjects, 66 subjects. And uh, they, they've all been scanned with a T1-weighted um, structural magnetic resonance imaging. Some were scanned at 3 tesla and some at 1.5. And this is, uh, becomes an important issue for certain kinds of comparisons. I don't think they're, they're not a big issue for the results I'll be talking about today. And um, the scans, for the most part, are collected when the animals are down for their annual physical exam. We'll go take a picture of their brain. So today, <laughs> I'm going to present something new. Um, Recently, I've developed a working collaboration with a, a gentleman named Jeff Mangan. He's at the Neurospin Institute in Paris. And I, for those graduate students in the crowd, I would always recommend that you find collaborators in Paris. <laughs> um, he's developed a software program called BrainVisa. And BrainVisa has an automated pipeline that allows you uh, to automatically extract the salt dye of the brain. So this is a T1 scan. The scan is homogenized in terms of getting uniformity of the signal through the brain. Um, if then a mask is made of the brain, this is really not necessary because we skull strip the brain first, but sometimes they don't skull strip, so they make a mask that distinguishes the brain from skull. It then creates a split brain mass, so it splits the brain in half based on some landmarks that we give the program, notably the the ACPC, the anterior commissure, posterior commissure lines. Um, so it makes a right hemisphere or a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere, and it also distinguishes the cerebellum from the cortex. Then it then creates, um, it distinguishes or segments the gray from the white matter, and it creates these meshes. And this is the white matter mesh, and this is the gray matter mesh. And if it fuses them together, uh, it then you get something that looks like this, which is then uh, whatever these gaps are left over is where you see the salt guy. Um, and so we've measured this in different primates. We've used the software to measure asymmetries in sulci for the left and right hemispheres for uh, macaques, chimps, and humans. So in the macaques, we've looked at the central sulcus and the arcuate here, and then the principal sulcus, or the rectus, it's sometimes referred to as. Uh, we've also looked at uh, two temporal lobe sulci, the sylvian fissure here and the superior temporal sulcus. We've also looked here at the uh, intraparietal and also here the lunate. So uh, here's the chimp brain, same thing. It's, you can obviously, it has more sulci, uh, but we've tried to look at the same sulci as, uh, with, with some additions as in the rhesus. So here, again, is the central sulcus. Um, here's the frontal lobe sulci we've looked at. So this is the superior precentral. This is the inferior frontal. This is the uh, precentral inferior, and this is the frontal orbital. We were particularly interested in these two because these, this is the posterior, and this is the anterior border of this gyrus that forms uh, Broca's area, homolog, in the chimp brain. 
We've also looked at the sylvian fissure and the superior temporal. Also in the uh, parietal lobe, we've looked at the inferior postcentral, superior postcentral, and the intraparietal. And lastly, uh, the lunate as well. Um, and this is a human. I don't have a picture of a human. Um, we all know what we look like. Um, and these are, again, just the same sulci labeled in the human brain. All right, so where there's common sulci, we can directly compare the species. Where they're not, we can look at you know, within subject uh, or within species um, variability. Uh, before we do that, let me tell you one thing that BrainVisa does that's really, really interesting. In the olden days, when they measured sulci asymmetries, they typically just measured. They would take literally a piece of um, the um, dental floss, basically, and run it up the sulcus and measure its length. Um, with BrainVisa, it actually extracts the entire surface area of the sulcus. In addition to that, depending on the plane that the sulcus runs, it, it will divide it into arbitrary units. Um, like in this case, it's a dorsal-ventral movement of, say, the central sulcus, and it will actually calculate the average thickness. And uh, just since I, he's standing, um, <laughs> just so you know, for the rhesus monkeys, uh, we found no evidence of population-level asymmetries all right, in any of the sulci for either um, surface area or mean depth. In contrast, for the chimpanzees, we found a number. We found leftward asymmetries in surface area and depth um, in the superior uh, precentral, sylvian fissure. Uh, we also found it for the intraparietal, these leftward asymmetries in all these cases, and also in the lunate. This is the data when you look at humans, chimps, and monkeys. All right, And some circle we can compare and some we can't. Um, this one, humans are very leftward for the central compared to chimp and macaques. The frontal orbital, this is very interesting. The humans show a right bias, and the chimps show a left. And uh, Sylvian Fisher, they're quite comparable. Um, for the intraparietal, again, human chimp looks pretty comparable. Okay, but you get some differences here in the superior and the lunate. Okay, this is what I think is most interesting, and this will be my last slide. Um, this is actually, if you measure the, the gray matter thickness of the sulci, the gray matter that, of the buried sulci. In the superior front, uh, excuse me, the sylvian fissure and the superior uh, temporal sulcus, there's really no difference between the, the humans and the chimps. But in the frontal lobe, there's quite pronounced differences. Uh, the humans show a very robust leftward asymmetry in gray matter thickness uh, relative to the chimpanzees. And we feel, see a little bit in the parietal. So I'm going to jump, this, uh, very jump through this very quickly. Um, I would argue that there is evidence for population-level asymmetries in chimpanzees, and they exist, therefore exist prior to the split with humans. Um, the evidence of behavioral and brain asymmetries in more distantly related species, I think, is a little less robust. Um, it isn't really clear why there's this difference in the handedness between the species, and I, th I think we could spend a lot of time talking about why that might be the case. And lastly, I'd just end by saying that um, uh, I think our findings suggest that brain asymmetries actually facilitated the evolution of complex motor and cognitive function in human rather than we're instead of rather instead of being a consequence of them which is in essence historically um, what has been proposed all right thank you you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv visit us online at uctv.tv